Hello, and welcome to the Disability Connection. I'm your host, Walter Nunes. The Disability Connection is sponsored by the Disability Law Center, which is the protection and advocacy system for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. We provide legal services for folks with disabilities in areas ranging from special education, uh, employment, housing, and folks who live in uh, residential programs or facilities. Disability Law Center can be reached at 617-723-8455 or toll free at 800-872-9992 or online at www.dlc-ma.org. And I can see it's on the screen right there. Um, today, I'm joined by Marlene Sayo. Marlene is the new executive director for the Disability Law Center, and we're delighted that she's come to speak with us today. And we want to little learn, learn a little bit about Marlene's history prior to coming to the Disability Law Center and her vision for the future. So thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. So I'm just going to get right into it. Sure. Um, as I said to the audience that you've, you've come to us from Virginia, yes. I understand. And and you're, 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 you're taking on the helm at the Disability Law Center, and you've got a lot of experience, and would like to hear a little bit about what you did uh, before you came to Boston, and why don't we start with that? Sure, so I can say that I can com compartmentalize my experience into three different areas um, that are all related to the work that I will be doing for um, DLC. So the first part of my career, I actually was a case manager and special education teacher um, working with uh, students with disabilities as well as uh, children from birth to five um, that were, um, had fetal alcohol syndrome. So I, in that respect, I provided direct services, whether it was educational or connecting my clients as a case manager and their parents to services that were provided in the community. Um, somewhere along the line, I decided I wanted to go to law school. And um, I went to law school and then returned to teaching. When I finally started practicing, I was a litigator, um, both in the private sector as well as in the public sector. And my work allowed me to work within the doing cases on child welfare, abuse and neglect, as well as juvenile justice cases and ultimately special education law, working for the Florida Protection and Advocacy Group. So it's, it's, this is right up your alley. You have experience with the P&A model. Yes, I do. So. Um, I want to just talk a little bit more. So would you, would you work like early intervention, kids, very small children? As a case manager, yes. It was early intervention work. Uh, um, it was at the Mailman Center for Child Development at the University of Miami Medical School. And so the goal was to, to look at how uh, children uh, progress cognitively um, that were born uh, with fetal alcohol syndrome, syndrome or addicted to crack cocaine. Um, and then um, later on as a special ed teacher, obviously, it was, you know, making sure that the IEP was created appropriately to deliver the necessary services and providing accommodations as needed for our students within the special education program. Fetal alcohol syndrome must be a very difficult work, very heart-wrenching. It was very heart-wrenching, but I had some fabulous clients and, and their moms and dads, you know, just wanted the best for their child. Um, and we tried to assist them in connecting them with the services that they needed. So when you were doing litigation, um, was it the same population or a little bit older kids or could you? So um, 
It was um, mostly high school students because of the work that I did uh, focused on either through the PNA, ensuring that the IEPs that were implemented were appropriate. I'm you oh, I'm sorry. Individual education plan. I do the same thing. <laughs> but all, everybody doesn't know that out in the yes. television world. <laughs> so, ensuring that the individual education plans were drafted to specifically address the needs of the student. So, that was the kind of work that I did at the PNA. And so, I, could, I, would, I would be assigned a case anywhere between kindergarten to 12th grade. But as a litigator, where I'm in the courtroom every day, I mostly worked with uh, youth that were in foster care or that were involved with the um, delinquency, juvenile delinquency um, work, or um, that were actually uh, dually involved. And so what I mean by that is we would have students in foster care who would also get arrested uh, for a, uh, an infraction or a crime. And so then they would go to what we call in Florida uh, unified family court, mm -hmm. where it would be one judge that would have both the foster care file as well as a juvenile delinquency file. And a lot of the students, or a lot of the kids that went through that unified family court were minority students who also had special education needs or had an active individual education plan. Let me drill down on that a little bit. I don't have anywhere near the experience you do in this area, but I know from um, my colleagues and your colleagues now that we talk a lot about the school to prison pipeline. Correct. And it seems like you might have had the same students both while they were in school yes. and maybe a little bit later down the road. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about what what occurs that a young young individual with a disability who's in school, what may happen that they find themselves on the road to prison? Um, so if I could just take it sure. back a little bit ways, um, it's it's we fail as a society <laughs> to look at the whole child. When the child comes into an education and in the educational system, um, what those of us that litigate in this area have discovered is that when all things are equal and all students uh, are, are, are charged with the same school infraction, what we find is that minority youth, whether they're Native American, Latino, or African American, receive a harsher punishment than a, a Caucasian youth um, at the same level. So all things being equal, the only difference in the punishment that's being um, doted out is race, color, and national origin. And so why is that? Is it because we're lacking, we meaning the educational system is lacking the services that are needed in the classroom from the time the student enters kindergarten to help them deal um, with whatever emotional issues may arise? Is it a lack of structure in the household? Is it a lack of um, uh, inability to access services, whether it's behavioral health services or mental health services, or just the fact that a student comes to school hungry because they're poor? And they act out because they can't focus. And instead of, of a teacher taking a moment to say, stop, what is going on here? How can I understand the full picture and not just react to what is happening here can sometimes reduce um, the reasons why a student is suspended. 
Um, expulsion is something different under zero tolerance policies, which every school has those. Mm -hmm. um, and so a child is automatically expelled for bringing any controlled substance on campus right. or for having a weapon. And in those cases, as an attorney, I work to ensure that the time that the child spends outside of the school due to an expulsion is as minimal as possible, but that there is a continuity of educational services for that youth if the youth ends up being incarcerated. Before touching on policy, I did have Colleen Shea on this program yes. once. It was terrific, as you are being right now. But what she educated me to that, you know, when a child gets in trouble, be it a small or a little bit more serious offense, and they're out of school, that period out of school can really lead to a dropout rate yes. or an expulsion, yes. and then everything starts to fall it, from there. It just, it just starts tumbling one into the other. And so one of the things that I feel is backwards from a policy perspective is that in some school districts, a child who is truant automatically gets suspended and or expelled. So here's a kid who doesn't want to come to school, so your solution is to tell him, don't come to school. Right. He gets what he wants. Right. And so then what are we going to do with that child during the day if parents have to work? The idle hands, right? Idle mind. And so what I found within my caseload is that the kids that were pushed out of school because of truancy were hanging out, and then they ultimately got in trouble because they're outside, they're hanging on a... Um, and doing what some kids, you know, may do, and getting picked up by an officer for being truant, and then being placed in detention for truancy. <laughs> so let me ask you this, and I never thought of this before, and maybe it's an unfair question, and I apologize in advance. What percentage do you think of young men and women who are in the penal system today started out as kids with disabilities with IEPs? The a number that I heard recently, and just as of last week, is that 85% of the kids that are currently detained have special education needs or already have an IEP. I would have thought 50 would have been high. 85%. That's what I heard last week. So. Well, it almost makes my next question uh, <laughs> unnecessary, but I'm going to follow my, my plan here. The question is, what do you bring to DLC? It's pretty obvious what you bring to DLC. So... Based upon your knowledge, what are you looking to share with this office, the direction you want to move this office in? That would be really important for me to hear and important for the folks outside to hear. So uh, as I, I, you know, most of the background that I've relayed up till now has um, dealt with uh, child and youth-related issues. I've also worked with the adult population, um, you know, during policy with the federal government for six years. Um, I work closely on what we call uh, Title VI issues. What does that mean? discriminatory practices based on race, color, national origin, um, as well as working on issues that deal with disability, discrimination based on disability, religion, a sexual identity, gender. Um, and so it's about looking, being able to look at the different pieces of discriminatory practices that exist or may uh, show up from a federal perspective or a state perspective. And seeing how a lot of these discriminatory practices are interconnected. And what do I mean by that? When we think of people with disabilities, it's not um, a one-size-fits-all approach to dealing with uh, concerns within the, uh, that a person with a disability may have. Sometimes there's that an intersectionality of low socioeconomic status, um, 
they have a disability, but maybe they're also a minority. And so the discriminatory practices that they may be experiencing can be multi-layered. And so being able to distill that, uh, being able to ask the right questions and then know how to connect them, not just based on their disability, but other needs that they may bring Let to the table. Let me drill down a little bit. Ask the right question of whom? The actual uh, person with a disability that's experiencing um, whether this discriminatory practice, right? So um, with my clients, they would come in and they would present with an issue. And so on its face, it sounds like the issue is maybe um, lack of access to accommodations in the school. But as you start to drill down with, you know, interactions with your client, you realize that in addition to that, they may not be able to access appropriate health care or they may uh, need assistance with housing. Um, and they may not know that they're eligible for other services outside of the school that may also help them with housing issues or accessibility you know, to medical care. Okay. I've worked in legal services a while <laughs> myself. And, and I mean that completely respectfully. But there's always a little bit of a tension, and we talked about this yesterday, that you know, you're, you're an attorney in a legal services office and a very good perspective that many people hold is that you want to treat your clients with disabilities or other, let's say, barriers or challenges to their life. You want to treat them exactly as the same as the guy who's coming in and he wants you to insure his house. But by the same token, there are needs, like there's an old French expression, it's just as illegal for a rich man to sleep under a bridge as a poor man, but the poor man sleeps under the bridge. So we have populations who have various and intersecting problems. How do you envision addressing those yet still maintaining the role of attorney and not going into case management, for example? And, and it's a fine line. Um, but the goal for any attorney, in my, my opinion, is to know that, yes, this is the area of law that I can assist you with. However, you have to have a network of other attorneys be aware of the services that are offered in your community so that then you can provide referrals. And that's the beautiful Bingo. thing about the protection and advocacy system is that, yes, we're charged with um, assisting individuals with disabilities within the certain areas that we cover. But we also have the ability to reach out across the aisle and reach out to other agencies that can provide the services that the PNA can't provide and provide those referrals to the individuals that are coming to us for assistance. That's a perfect answer and as you well know uh, legal services there is a small but tight group of folks uh, we can't afford to duplicate the services of other agencies, so we really have to be connected and to make those referrals. So how do you get that vision? One of the reasons you're on the show today is to introduce yourself to the community of Boston and to outreach to folks who may right. say, wow, that woman's got some really good ideas. How do, we, how do we take advantage of that? So, so I'm very forward-facing, um, and my goal, in the, so I've only been in this position less than five weeks, but my goal within the past five weeks is to really get out into the community and start to meet um, with folks. And I'll continue to do that, because it's important to be connected to the community that you serve. And you can't um, be connected sitting behind a desk. Um, and so it's, it's 
making uh, making sure that I schedule meetings, speaking to other service deliver um, agencies that deliver services, mm -hmm. so that they're aware of uh, the services that that we're offering, so that we can collaborate as needed. Uh, being aware of who our stakeholders are, being aware of the fact that some of the individuals that need our services. Um, may not uh, speak English or and so how do we make sure that we also reach out to them because every person with a disability has the has the right to have access to services and so making sure that it's culturally competent and that it's uh, within their their home language so that they understand what their rights are is important and so over time the goal is to make sure that we have that contact with all communities that we serve so, um, you know, it's funny, as I was writing the word, word cultural competencies, you were saying it. So it's very nice to hear that. I, I know, and I, I'm, I know that you are aware, some communities, for many well-founded and historical reasons, really don't want to shine the light on the fact Absolutely. that maybe somebody in their family has a disability because right. it can result in discrimination or lost opportunity or maybe just being shunned by other members of the community. Mm -hmm. Do you have any ideas about how to address that or if folks are watching from communities like that, what would be your approach to you well, know, making yeah. that our services, the DLC services available to them? So I think it requires us to do a lot of education within the community and, and not say, you know, just go where our communities are. Go into the community and speak to them, you know, maybe at the community center or you know local PTA meeting where you can let the, the parents in a PTA meeting or the the folks that attend community center like these are your rights and you have rights and if you have a disability it's nothing to be ashamed of you know from a personal perspective I'm, I'm Latina and for for me to self-identify as someone with a disability in the beginning even though I knew better it was difficult to do that because yes. the way that I was raised it meant that I was less than because I needed an accommodation or because I needed something that perhaps, you know, my other relatives did not. And so we have to get past that because we all um, have the, the right to access any and all services on equal footing. And because I need an accommodation doesn't mean that I can't do the job. Of course. It just means that I have to do it a little bit differently. So I'm inventing a word here as we <laughs> were talking. We talk about community outreach. Mm -hmm. What about in reach, meaning people in the community contacting the Disability Law Center. I know we talked about this yesterday, mm -hmm. so it's not a surprise. <laughs> um, if there are folks watching this program who are members of a community or in a PTA or in a church group, is it fair to say that you would be interested in hearing from these absolutely, folks? Absolutely, absolutely. And if they want to do a, a community meeting and have me go out and speak to them and present to them what uh, their rights are, um, under the many laws that it will apply um, and just or just to hear them out you know sometimes what I've found doing community outreach is that when you go into a community and you sit down and you start speaking to community members and they start feeling comfortable with you they start telling you listen you know like so-and-so has this issue or we're finding difficulty um, let's say in accessing this building because there a, a ramp is lacking or um, you know there I'm not getting the accommodation that I need who should I speak to and maybe I personally can't assist them and maybe it's beyond the scope of what the PNA does but because we do work closely with other uh, you know service providers in the community we can refer them 
Okay. I want to take a time check here. We're about four minutes before the end of the show. Goes quick, huh? Yeah, it does. <laughs> and it's been really, really wonderful, and we've touched on a lot of great issues, but I know there are a couple of other issues that you wanted to touch on, one being an event that's coming up yes. May 18th. Yes. So uh, we're working closely, we, meaning DLC, is working closely uh, with other uh, organizations here in Massachusetts, and we're going to hold a forum. Uh, the organizations in DOC on May 18th to discuss the upcoming midterm elections and to come up with an action plan on how we can uh, get the word out to our community members to ensure that not only are they registered to vote, but if they're unable to access any voting places, um, how to give us, provide us with that information um, so that we can follow up to ensure that everyone has access to all your polling spots, as well as the fact that if you're unable to physically make it to a polling location, how can we get you registered for an absentee ballot? And so uh, the folks that assist the community members are going to get together on May 18th, come up with an action plan, and throughout the summer go out, check the polling sites, and just work with our community members and our ILCs to ensure that we get the word out, that the midterm election is coming, and it's important for everyone who can vote and has the right to vote to make sure that they vote. And let's talk about what access means in the yes. disability community. I think we all realize that if a person uses a wheelchair, there may need to be a ramp. But it's not just that kind of access, right? Right, right. Folks who are blind or hard of hearing, can you talk about what access means for those populations? So, for instance, um, having subtitles when you're watching something on television or making sure that um, if you have low vision or visually impaired um, and, you're, and something's on TV or some video, that it's the, there's a descriptor. So it'll, it'll describe exactly what's happening on the screen so that the person has knowledge of that. Um, and, you know, there comes the intersectionality as well because it's not just about being able to access a site or a reading material or, or listening to something. It's also, um, do you need it in a different language? Um, you know, so within the folks who are, you know, English is a second language, accessibility also has an additional <coughs> layer. Um, one of the things that we find is that when folks think about accessibility, they only think of uh, a ramp to get into a restaurant or, right. or being able to access a garage. But think about going to your doctor's office. Right? Are you able to enter your doctor's office appropriately? Does your doctor provide you with the information that you need if you have low vision so that you can actually be able to access that information on your own? Um, are you being provided with a sign language interpreter, right. ASL interpreter, if that is needed? Um, also in schools, right? Accessibility in school. Or can you access physical education? Um, can you access the music room? And I don't mean just being able to go in there with your wheelchair, but just having access to the program itself. But if I may, and I just want to bring this back to the May 18th, mm -hmm. access and voting can also mean having accessible ballots. Absolutely. Or what we call in Massachusetts, I don't know what they call it, Virginia and Florida, but auto mark machines. Yes. So the people who need that assistance and and so what you're doing is helping to not only get people registered and getting them to the polls, but making sure that the polls themselves are not only accessible yes. physically, but have the machinery and the tools and the trained staff mm -hmm. who can help facilitate a citizen who might be low vision Absolutely. or hearing impaired yes. to be able to see the ballot, make a decision, and yes. cast their vote. Yes, thank I you for connecting a, that. <laughs> I, I just, I thought it was part of the job, you know. Uh, I know we're running a little close here. 
So we're going to have to leave off. Uh, there's so many more things that we could talk about. But as you heard uh, Marlene talk about, she's more than happy to hear from you folks. And right now, the number and the website is on your screen. We'd like to thank you so much thank for, for coming. Pleasure. I can tell you as a DLC employee, we're very, very appreciative that you're here. Thank you. And we're looking for an exciting tenure. Yeah. So thank you very much for watching and please stay well.